Cole Cabana's on AEW Unrestricted. I've always been a person who impresses people over time. Like, that's always been my theory. I'm always a slow burn. That should have been my name. Slow burn Cole Cabana. <laughs> so join me and Tony Schiavone for AEW Unrestricted, powered by State Farm. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Frankie Dion, and you're listening to BR Football Rex. So that's it, boys. Liverpool have won the title and this is BR Football Rags. Welcome to the show. I'm joined as ever by Sam Ty. Hello, mate. And Dean Jones. Hello, mate. I mean, it seems remiss not to start with Liverpool. What a side. They have been so far and away the best side this year in the Premier League that it, it seems almost ludicrous to talk about it. But the title holders for the first time in 30 years and you know it's very well deserved. Yeah, I mean, I have to admit, um, I was pleased to see them batter Crystal Palace because I had kind of forgotten what Liverpool their best were like, and I'm not even saying that that was their best, but it was it was so convincing, and they were so far the better team, and there were flashes of brilliance in that game. Some of the goals were great, and it did just remind you like how much better they've been than the rest of the pack this season. Um, completely deserved champions I think for however much you dislike Liverpool for however much you are dreading the fact that they can gloat over this for the next year um, the one thing you can't say is that they don't deserve it for two years now they've been pretty much the best team or close to the best team in the Premier League and um, now we wait for the next step can they retain the title well, it seems like it seems like a very good question. And, and to kind of help us get to the bottom of that, this episode is going to be a versus special. Uh, obviously, we did Messi versus Ronaldo a couple of weeks back, probably months now. It feels it feels like months either way. Um, but we're gonna we're gonna flip that to managers today, and we're gonna take on a, a Pep versus Jurgen Klopp, Pep versus Jurgen Klopp special to you know to to examine the two managers. There's there's always this debate now. I think and and given. Klopp's rise to the very, very top of the game in the last two years, I would say, it, where he has now gone from being an incredible manager who did good things to an incredible manager who has now pretty much won the lot. And I think there's a, now a, a fair debate to be, to be had here. In it. it is an interesting one to explore, and I'm looking forward to it, Sam. Yeah, it should be good. Should, uh, look, honestly, I spent two hours this, this morning just trying to prepare for it, and I'm exhausted already. That's that's how intense this chat is going to be. It's going to be as intense as the football that both of these managers play and uh, and encourage. So, yeah, it's going to be good. I think it's going to be tight, just like the Messi-Ronaldo one was. But before that, we've got a few things to address, haven't we? We do indeed, and let's move on to this week's hot take. So, Sam, start us off. Something you need to know. Yeah, I think we need to cut through some of the noise on this uh, this much-debated Miralem Pjanic Artur swap deal from Juve Barca which has sent pretty much the entire footballing landscape into a frenzy uh, the entire Barcelona fan base into something of a fury I've seen a lot of takes I've watched it all unfold and a lot of the good points are being buried by a lot of the anger so let's um Let's bring it back to a couple of key notions here. And it's important to recognize these things when you assess this deal and you figure, the, you figure out who wins the deal or, or how you feel about it. First and foremost, it does appear as though financial elements are 
the priority in this deal, which is a shame. It should always be about the football. But if you follow or look at a Twitter thread from Swiss Ramble, and you're much better off doing that than listening to me try to explain football finances, that makes it very clear that being able to post a profit on both of these players is essentially the priority for these two teams. And look, we've talked about in the last few weeks how Barca don't have any money and how they're going to have to sell someone. Could it be Coutinho? Could it be Usman Dembele? Turns out it's Arta. It's not the player that Barcelona fans wanted to see sold, but they were going to have to sell somebody. And you have to remember, you have to remember when you assess this deal that the finances are hugely important and they are the starting point for why this is happening. And you look at Swiss Ramble's Twitter thread, I, I implore you to do it, to, to exactly see the intricacies of that. But both of these players are going to be able to post a 60 million euro profit on the books of each club. And the reason for this deal is that, okay? The other thing, and this is also getting lost, is in amongst the anger of, you know, Barca replacing a good 23-year-old midfielder with his best years in front of him with a 30-year-old midfielder whose best years are probably behind him. And I can understand the anger behind losing a good potential prospect for someone who has declined this year. I get it. The one thing missing in all this is that Artur is, is, not, is not the player that Barca fans pretend he is. He just yet, isn't, yet, and and he's and he's yeah yet. I and I get I get it. He's he's young. He can improve, but two years now hasn't set the world alight. Um, doesn't dominate games. Doesn't really offer you much creatively in the final third. Never really offered that much defensively anyway. Which you can say fair enough. It's not his job in certain elements. Fine. He he has his strengths. He's very good on the ball. Very press resistant. Difficult to dispossess. Difficult to fluster. All those things. But you look at his form for Gremio when they signed him, and you look at his best ever performances in the last two years, which is probably the Copa America for Brazil. Common theme is that he's in a midfield two, and Barca are obsessed with a four-three-three. So if after two years they've reached the conclusion that Artur is expendable because he doesn't suit the system that they are basically instructed to play. And Frankie de Jong has come along. And although he hasn't also shown his best, he's a better footballer. Artur is expendable. And he's not as good as some Barcelona fans want him to be or see him as being in their heads. I can understand the, the love for the potential and the fact that he has this Barca DNA, which are, is a very vague term. But man, you, you're not losing a player that is integral to your system. And you're not losing a player that actually suits you that well. And if you get offered 80 million euros for him, you take it. And those are my two main takeaways from the deal. The primary aspect is financial, but also I know it kind of sucks to lose a prospect, but the, he's not your Lord and savior. And if you've got a good fee for him, it's, it's an okay deal to do. It's a short term one, isn't it? And, and I was thinking about this the other day and I completely agree with you that Pjanic has, has regressed this season. And I think that he has struggled in a Sarri system and I think it's not been great for him. I would say that currently, I still think that Miralem Pjanic is a better player right now than Artur is. And that he won't be in two years' time, let's make that perfectly clear. But right now, I think he's a better player. And if what they're doing is short-termism and looking to kind of get the best out of Messi's last years at the club and surround him with players who are going to do that right now, right this second, Look, it's not a good strategy in terms of a long-term plan. I'm not suggesting it is by any stretch of the imagination. But if you're trying to do that, and you can understand the kind of dynamics as to why Barcelona are up to this, it, it makes more sense in that kind of perspective than I think it does from a, from a long-term strategy. What are your thoughts, Dean? Yeah, I wonder um, if part of this is down to the fact that Barcelona really do need to focus on the here and now, to be honest. I mean, we've seen them over the course of this season that they have steadily been regressing. Uh, even the change of manager hasn't changed the fact that they always look beatable, always look susceptible to conceding. 
and are relying more and more heavily on the players that have been there for years and are now aging and are going to be gone soon. So I think that maybe Barca just need an experienced, another experienced player to actually just get through the next year while they decide what they're going to do longer term. I don't know, but I really don't think that Pjanic should be mocked as much as he's being mocked because he's a really good footballer. And you know, there were spells a year ago when Pjanic was playing some good football. Like I know that in the last season he hasn't been great and he's, but that's all to do with, you know, Sarri struggling to adapt to the Juve team in the way that he wanted. Um, I just, I don't get the fuss about this deal, to be honest. Like Sam's saying, I, I completely agree. And my main takeaway from it is actually, I think Pjanic is going to do really well at Barcelona. And I don't think you're going to see Arthur doing great things at Juve immediately. I think he's going to be a really good signing over the course of four or five years, no doubt about that. But I still think that Juve will be looking to sign another midfielder that's going to make even more impact over the next two years. I don't think that this is what the Juve have been missing. So it's a really interesting deal. It's got a lot of people talking. It's also given us real insight into Juve's um, transfer policy for the next year or so, because they have been spending money like nobody's business. They've been throwing it around. It didn't matter your age. It didn't matter anything. You know, Ronaldo, Bernucci, uh, De Ligt, it didn't matter. They were just trying to sign big players and try to make a mark. Um, I think that the mark they're making by signing Arthur is like, we can sign players from anywhere. We can take Ronaldo, the best player in the world. We can get De Ligt, the best young player in the world. We can even go to Barcelona and sign one of the year, their young prospects. But what they're having to do now is they're having to throw players into the mix so that they're getting, them, they're getting the players that they want. So we will see other Juve players going out the door. One that's been mentioned to me several times is that we'll see Higuain going um, in order for them to sign a new striker. Milik is the one that's being put to me most regularly as the, the man that they're going to try and get in. An interesting fit. I don't know exactly um, how that works and whether Sarri's really sort that, thought that through. But nevertheless, uh, <laughs> this is what we're looking at. Swap deals of the future for Juve. Well, Arthur doesn't fit Sarri's system either. I was about to throw this to you, Sam, right? Yeah, I mean, you, you look at it another way. It's like, well, go, going from a 4-3-3 to a 4-3-3. I mean, it's the, it's the same thing, isn't it? I mean, I don't know if it's the maybe the, the difference in style of the league may, may lead to a difference there. I, it could be that. Um, one thing I'd just like to top the debate off with is I understand that in, it's this, this, this outrage of Barca's loss of Artur is, is compounded by the fact that Pjanic is 30. And that isn't that old, but when you consider the profile of the squad Barca have and the core of players that have dragged them through these last five, six years, when you look at the age of Busquets and Piquet and Suarez and Messi, adding another 30-plus-year-old to a team that is already too old, it it doesn't, it doesn't make a lot of sense long-term, and I get that. And I understand the concerns with Pjanic. I do think he's being talked about as a Sunday league player at times, which is really harsh because he's really, really good, as Dean says. But I, I understand those concerns. It's from the Artur perspective where I'm like, he isn't what you think he is, what you pretend he is, what you want him to be. It's how I feel about Lucas Paqueta. I wish he was 10% better, and in my head he is. But in reality, he's not. He's actually just not that good. But I kind of wish he was. It, every fan has this. Every, every football fan sees a player in a slightly different light. And I think the obsession with Artur is imbalanced with what he actually is. Yeah. I'm just going to put my tinfoil hat on for a second and a conspiracy theory incoming. But if 
Bartomeu is into his last year of president or of this term of presidency with, with elections coming up next year, I believe. Um, I think he knows he's not going to win that election um, because the anger at Barca and the way that they've done business is, is quite vehement at the moment, I would say. What I would say is that I think he's trying to short term it. This year, they're not going to win any trophies unless they somehow pull around a Champions League victory or they, you know, the Real Madrid collapse in the Liga, which I don't think is going to happen on either count. Uh, and I think it'll be the first time they've gone trophyless in a long, long time. And when you think about that, I think next year he'll be like, right, put my cards on the table. But if I'm having a, if I'm having a future kind of uh, the next person to take on the mantle, I'm going to give them as little to work with in terms of future possessions as possible. So, you know, we saw Mark Cucurella leave today. You know, he's been, his claws has been activated at Hatafe. We've, we've seen other prospects from this academy farmed out, you know, to, to other teams for, for seemingly less than they're worth. And I'm interested if this is a long-term ploy to come back as Barcelona's saviour in six years' time. That is the biggest <laughs> conspiracy theory this podcast has ever seen. Even bigger than footballers are required to answer Drake when they're asked their best no, answer. That's, that's not a conspiracy theory. That's a fact. <laughs> <laughs> okay, since Van Dyke wears after show. Yeah, exactly. Right, Dean, let's move on to something that is going to happen. Yeah, well, Akraf Hakimi is going to join Inter Milan, and I think it's something we need to talk about. Um, it is interesting that we're getting to the stage now. Um, it is summer. It doesn't feel like it because it's still football going on and it should be a European championship but actually we're just getting domestic football but transfers are coming back and yeah Hakimi's not going to be a Real Madrid player as a lot of Real Madrid fans would have liked I think um, he's going to be leaving after his spell at Dortmund to become an Inter Milan player uh, so I just thought I'd address a couple of the reasons why I've been speaking to a couple of people around the deal that, that know what's been going on I've been tracking this for a little while as well. So there were two big problems from staying at Real Madrid. One was concerns over his defending. Um, obviously, Hakimi is great going forward. He's a good defender. But is he going to be reliable in a back four? And I think that that was one of the concerns that uh, Madrid had uh, going forward. But secondly... <laughs> Sorry. It's so rich from the club that have used Marcelo for a decade. Yes. So rich. Further than that, from the player's point of view, when was he going to play? Where was he going to fit in? You know, was he going to leapfrog Carvajal? Wasn't realistically going to, you know, it was, it was looking tricky for him. And I think that he's always been open to a challenge elsewhere if it would come around. He's always been quite keen on the idea of moving to the Premier League and Chelsea and Arsenal have been tracking him for 18 months. Um, Chelsea went quiet on him once Rhys James started to emerge. Um, and Arsenal, however keen they were, just can't put their money where their mouth is. So they couldn't get involved in this deal. And actually, they didn't really have much time to get involved in it because once Inter Milan were interested, they just went for it. Conte has uh, made it clear that he really wanted Hakimi. He loves his style. He's assured him that he'll fit in brilliantly to Serie A, to life in Milan. And in the talks as well, assured him that Lautaro is going nowhere. So Inter think they're going to have a, a real hit at winning Serie A next season. They at least want to really push Juve. Um, and at 45 million euros, which is what this deal is going to amount to, I think they've got a brilliant bit of business. Um, obviously, we weren't sure how the, the market was going to start to measure up. We're starting to see it. And if you're getting a player of this caliber at that kind of fee, then you've got a great deal. Yeah. I mean, he 
he's a natural fit, isn't he, for a Conte system? And I know, Sam, you said that you were super excited about seeing him in that system. Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, bad news for Victor Moses. Crushing blow. Never saw this one coming. Not at all. But uh, Hakimi under Conte is like perfect fit. And Hakimi at Inter just makes me think of Mycon. Because he is basically Mycon, isn't he? Yeah. He's Mm. super powerful, has an incredible amount of thrust and directness to his play. A tailor-made wing-back, clearly better for a wing-back than, than right-back. Real Madrid aren't wrong in that sense. And can dominate a flank physically and can score and assist prolifically. I mean, he is basically the Moroccan Mycon. So I love this. I absolutely love it from Inter's perspective. I think it's a horrendous mistake from Real Madrid. Uh, I don't think you can, you can really turn around and be like, oh, we're not sure if you can defend if you've used Marcelo for 10 years. And the fact that you've actually got a new left back anyway in Ferlon Mendy, who is a lot better defensively. And you can, of course, as we know, you can rotate a defensive line to go from a four to a three and you can use a more defensive-minded fullback and a more attacking one. Prime example, Abidal and Dani Alves at Barcelona. So none of those reasons make any sense to me whatsoever and I don't agree with them. I think it's a huge mistake, but wow, Conte and Inter have lucked out and Hakimi's chosen well as well. Like, I mean, maybe he didn't have too many choices, but it was clear that he wanted to play and he would do whatever it took to play. So if he was told, mm, not sure about that at Real Madrid, fair play for forcing it uh, and getting out of there and going and finding a really good situation. Yeah, I'm intrigued to see what happens now over this Conte side and, and see if they can push next year because the signings they make this summer, and as Dean said there, you know, whether they can hold on to, to Lautaro or not, it becomes you know, massive. And you know, if you look at this side and you think they're not far away from not only challenging for the Scudetto, you'd imagine, but potentially challenging in Europe. You know, this is a side that will will go toe-to-toe with anyone almost at this point. And he's, he's building some side there. So, I mean, I'm intrigued to see to see how far they can go next weekend. Um, and I'm going to finish this segment of Hot Takes um, with something I've loved this weekend. And there haven't been many, I'll be honest with you, Rex Squad. I have had a terrible weekend at football. Fulham got battered. Betis got battered. Fiorentina went 1-0 up at Lazio and then just did a Fiorentina, threw it away. It's been depression after depression after depression for me this weekend. But my mood was lifted by a man we talked about briefly last week, um, by Don Benzema, who, whose back heel assist simply just out of this world. And uh, I mean, we've talked about him, so I'm not going to go on about it for, for too long, but it just seems to get better and better and better. And it was just, he's been watching Isco, I'm sure Dean will say, but for me, it was Gooty esque. Just that moment of, it's just no way he can see that. It's impossible. At no point does he look backwards. He just knows. And it's just, ah, too much. Look, he, also, the defender's done everything right. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely everything right. Shepherded him wide. He's like, got his body in the way. And yet, um, Mercedes Benzema has, has managed to, to pull that one out. So, Shouts out to him because, rah, that was a very, very one of the very few highlights of a, a quite poor weekend. That is pretty much it for Hot Takes. So we will get on to our big debate in the next section, Pep versus Klopp on all manner of things. Let's get it. Don't go anywhere. For businesses around the world, today isn't a restart, it's a rethink. And that's why they're partnering with IBM. Retailers are keeping their systems up as millions of orders move online, Call centers are using IBM Watson to manage an influx of customer questions with AI. And solutions built on the IBM cloud are helping doctors care for patients remotely. Today, we're rethinking how business moves forward. So let's get to it. 
Let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com forward slash smart to learn more. Welcome back to BR Football Ranch, where it's time for the big debate. The second in our versus series, Pep Guardiola versus Jurgen Klopp. The current champion of England versus the former champion of England. And it is a big one. And Sam, we've got nine categories here. I'm pretty excited about this. Yeah, nine categories. Uh, I think Messi Ronaldo was 10, but these two aren't quite as good as those. So we reduced it to nine just to show the respect uh, to Messi and Ronaldo. But I think the, the, the best one to start with is one that you can really hot, hotly debate, basically. And it can be a bit of dealer's choice. And I think we'll start with, with tactical style. And um, in some places, I, I, offer, I actually, when, when, this, when this matchup is built, so Klopp versus Pep, it, it's, it's sometimes built as, as very different. And with Klopp, you know, you get those those phrases like heavy metal football and Pep Guardiola with Tiki Taka. And it always confuses me because there are a lot of similarities between these two in the way that they they coach and encourage football. And I can list off like six or seven here. I mean, they both encourage an incredible intensity, whether it's on the ball or off the ball. They both utilize really high pressure and defending from the front. They both encourage a high defensive line to complement that pressure. They'd be stupid if you didn't. They both prefer a 4-3-3 formation, or at least Klopp has done in the Premier League and Pep has throughout his career. They both use a, a playmaking striker who's responsible to, for scoring goals, but also dropping in and help building play. They both prioritize speed on the wings. They both recognize how vital it is. And there's heavy use of the fullbacks or wingbacks in everything, but most specifically build-up play and goals. And they even use the same wide or inverted balance. So they have one fullback pushing all the way up and overlapping and one tucking in to maintain a midfield shield. So all of that combined, it's very hard to get away from the reality that these two coach a very similar style of football. So yeah, very confused by the idea that it's like they're, they're the antithesis of each other, as some will tell you. I think the key difference, particularly in 2020, comes from their use of the midfield. And this is where, this is where they become very different. City build liberally through their midfield they actually both use the same style so a number six or two number eights ahead of them but City try and utilize a lot of central build-up a lot of triangles a lot of third man runs through the middle I understand why Kevin De Bruyne David David Silva they want De Bruyne on the shallow right position crossing for Sterling on the left they want David Silva pushed up against the edge of the box so he can slide those cute reverse passes into Aguero's runs Liverpool's midfield they're not used for that they literally just recycle the ball to try and play it to either the fullbacks running into space or the, fr- or the front three. And their most important role is off the ball. They act as a, a buffer to try and trap teams in. Now, City do that as well, but Liverpool's primary function in midfield is that. So the contrast, I think, is that's where you find it. And there's a very, very simple and easy statistical comparison here to hit to illustrate that. Henderson has three goals and five assists in the Premier League this season. Wijnaldum has three goals and zero assists. Kevin De Bruyne has 10 goals and 16 assists. And then David Silva has four and seven from just 18 starts. But that's still more than Henderson and Wijnaldum. So that's the difference. Liverpool attack with five and those five do not include their midfield. City attack with a few more and two of their midfielders are very much part of it. But they're very similar, right? So I guess the answer, if you're trying to decide like who's been more successful over the years, it's been Pep. But over the last two years, you can't get away from the, the fact that Klopp has, has won the big trophies, right? The, the Champions League and the Premier League and that his method seems more suited to 2020 football than Pep's does by a hair. 
Is that fair? Um, yeah, a very, very small margin. Dina, across to you. Yeah, I think that, uh, like Sam, um, a lot of their beliefs are, are very similar. I think that what's been most impressive about Klopp is how he has been able to watch. He sat there and watched Pep come in, transform the Premier League, basically show us how it's done, but then quickly learn lessons from it and turn his team into a more effective version um, in some cases, and especially in matches often when it when it really matters and they and they need the win. And over the last couple of years, I've been impressed by um, his use, particularly of um, fullbacks, which obviously is what Pep was the first one to really bring to the Premier League. The, the wingbacks play, the fullbacks playing high up, almost as wingers, hugging the touchline. Well, Klopp's used his in a similar way. They can be wingers, but they can almost become central midfielders at times as well, if needed. And I think that that's something that no other Premier League team has really been able to do. I think that it's um, such an important part of the modern game. And I think um, I heard an interview recently of Klopp where he identified uh, fullbacks as one of the most important positions in the game right now. And I think if you look at the pack behind them, they haven't been able to do to change their tactics in quite the same way. So I give Klopp a lot of credit for the way that he has quickly adjusted and, and learnt from Man City's domination. I still think that tactically, I would have to give the edge to Pep just because of everything he's done over the duration of his career and the way that he has literally changed the way we all watch football. Um, but uh, I have to really give credit to, to Klopp for adjusting his thinking and quickly catching up. City did do the inverted fullback thing as well. Pep, Pep's done it. I mean, I remember Fabian Delft doing it, um, but he, he flitted in and out of the strategy um, and no one, and he's never done it to the point where, where Trent has done it for like two years. Um, and it became a strategy they came to at certain points, but they haven't been able to nail it down, probably because Pep was never given a player or never had a player, never bought a player of the quality of Trent. Trent emerged from the academy, obviously, so that was a stroke of luck to an extent, but obviously Klopp spotted and decided to go with the talent. Uh, but Klopp has managed to use that strategy better and more effectively, for sure. I don't know if he was the first person to do it. It was around the same time that Pep, Pep tried it with Delph. It's just that Klopp just looks a lot better. Well, I think the thing too that's important here is that we, we recognise there are two separate categories here. Right? One of them is tactical style. Another one is tactical now slash variation, right? So it, it almost makes sense to roll these not into each other. They're two separate categories that we want to address but to, to deal with them one after the other. So let's take tactical style and say, Dean, you're giving it to Pep, you just said on the edge there, Sam. I think I'm giving it to Pep by, by, by a hair, honestly, just over the course of the career, rather than necessarily what's happened in the Premier League. Although, again, because in the wake of what Liverpool have done over the last two years, it's sort of easy to forget like 198 points for City over the course of two years. That takes some going, right? Yeah, absolutely. It, it's very, very easy to forget that you know, this team have been so, so dominant over the last couple of years because of, let's call it a blip, but, you know, what's happened this season. Let's take it onwards then to, to tactical now slash variation, which is potentially the more where Klopp has the edge. Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, I think that um, with, with Guardiola, the big question comes is when he has to change things up, can he do it effectively? Can he, he can find new positions for players well enough. I'm just not sure he can change the system. And probably just doesn't like going direct at times when he needs to go direct. And I think that Klopp, um, while he obviously loves beautiful football, he's he's also willing to to just be a winner. And I think that that's probably the, the standout difference between them. I don't think Guardiola is willing to go against his principles to win to win trophies. I think he wants to do things in a certain manner 
And I think that that's, for me, the main difference between them is that, that Klopp um, is less nailed down to, to doing things in a certain way. And it is, he's probably got a different type of squad to call on as well, to be honest. I think that Guardiola, the, the signings he makes are so in, my, in mind with what he's trying to achieve in a certain way, rather than just having um, different roles for the players to, to fulfill when they do come on. We talked about this quite a lot at the start of the year, Sam, when we talked about Gabby Jesus and whether he was going to fit into this City side as maybe a winger because we would, you know, we'd seen him at the, at the Copa America go out and, and kind of force his way into thinking by playing in different positions and allowing him to, to become part of a, a rotation, perhaps, as opposed to just being a foil for Sergio Aguero. And then we haven't really seen that at Man City almost at all. And look, that's potentially because the players he'd be trying to displace are the likes of Sterling, of Bernardo Silva, of Mares. You know, there's unbelievable quality there. And yet, you know, there does appear to be some, this kind of uh, reluctance from Pep, shall we say, to, to kind of really shift the system away from what he knows and has found success. Yeah, I'd, say, I'd definitely take the point uh, from yourself and, and from Dean that, that Pep has his principles uh, and they are extremely well drilled into players and there have been some accusations that, that that City or Pep's teams in particular maybe post Barcelona anyway can give off the feel of a bit of maybe roboticism like it's it's a bit mechanical it's all Scripted. very rehearsed yeah if you're like if you watch if you watch 50 games of Pep Guardiola City you know how you know numbers 51 to 60 are probably going to go but then he will he will throw a spanner into the machine at times won't he I mean you don't have to go that far back it's like February, Bernabeu, Real Madrid away, and he goes 4-4-2 with De Bruyne up front, Jesus on the wing and Aguero on the bench, and they won 2-1. They, 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 that, they were absolutely amazing. And he, he does, every now and then he just goes, right, let's burn this to the ground and see what happens. And that, there is a bit of versatility there. But generally speaking, I think Dean nailed it with Klopp being more willing to go with the flow and more willing to to adapt a game plan on the fly and just go a bit more robust, go a bit more direct if he, if that's what has to happen. There's more variation within the playing style on the pitch than there is with Guardiola's because Guardiola's is so well rehearsed. It's just that Guardiola will then change the entire game plan from one game to another and then back again, whereas Klopp will go in game. So it's again, it's like a really difficult one to call. Um, because we've also seen Guardiola change the whole thing and it really backfire. Yeah, I was going to say, it was all those accusations of him overthinking things, wasn't there, in big games yeah. in the Champions League? Like, well, I mean, they went to Tottenham and lost 1-0 in the Champions League the season before, you know, Tottenham's route to the final, and he got accused of overthinking that. He switched to 4-2-3-1. He played Gundogan when he probably, not maybe shouldn't have, but wasn't expected to when it was one of those things, because it's like, oh, Pep's overthinking it. Pep's changing things for the sake of it. But Pep changes his game plan ever so slightly every single game, right? And if you don't change things up, then you become predictable and and, and you're not a good manager. So, And also Sergio Aguero missed a penalty to make that 1-0. So there's fine margins in football, right? Pep ends up being called a failure for that when actually Aguero could have changed the course of that game and that's nothing to do with him. So it is a, it is a weird conversation to have that one about whether Pep overcomplicates things. And I'm not sold on the idea. No, nor am I. I'm but a lot, a lot of people think that he does. I'm just not, I'm just not sold on it. But with regard to the, the tactical nows and the switch up, I think they kind of win at their own game. So like Pep can change a game plan completely with a surprise element better than Klopp can. But Klopp can allow his team to roll with the punches a little bit better in game. I don't know which one I value more. I'm actually going to defer to Dean for the first vote. I'm trying to actually think in my head now, like if both of these teams were to play their strongest lineup, um, 
this week when they meet like who would I who would I fancy to win in every year before now I would have said Man City because I I just think that they are the better football team but right now I'm going with Klopp so I'm gonna say Klopp because I just think this is the way I'm going to judge it if these two who there's not much between them in terms of ability as, as a strongest team um, so what are the managers going to get out of them? Who's going to react best to, to getting the outcome that they want? And I'm going to go with Klopp. I'm going to go Pep and force Jack to do a decider. Uh, <laughs> I'm, not actually, I'm not actually old enough to vote. You're, yes, you are. Um, again. I will give this to Jurgen Klopp. Uh, okay. Um, I, I'm with you in that it's two very distinct styles. Um, but I think we've seen... You know, we, we saw this year Liverpool, uh, Man City lose Laporte and we saw the team kind of crumble at times around that moment. And I just have a feeling, you know, we saw last year when, when Liverpool played Barcelona in, in, in the Champions League semi-final and they were missing Salah and they were missing Firmino and everyone was like, oh, write it off. And yet Klopp just sort of managed to just redevelop the entire plan to... To make it work and and it was just one of those nights you know yes part of it is just atmosphere and part of it is the kind of pull of the anfield crowd and all of these things but i don't think you'd see a city side doing that with with two of its best players out uh, that's that's where i'm kind of taking my vote on and and that's why i'm going to give this to Klopp. Okay. Uh, and with that we will move on the trophy yeah this is an easier one yeah. <laughs> i mean this isn't a this isn't a subjective call it's a it's objective isn't it i mean coppers in the last 12 months, really boosted his trophy tally with a Champions League and a Premier League, which he adds and to... the Club World Cup, don't forget it. And the Club World Cup and the, and the European Super Cup. There you are. Uh, which he adds to one German Cup, two German League titles and a German Super Cup. So suddenly his trophy cabinet looks about double the size, which is great. Pep has obviously won two, two Champions Leagues, two Premier Leagues, three La Ligas, three Bundesligas. So that is uh, eight league titles, which is just incredible. Uh, he's won Spanish Cup twice, the Pokal twice, and the FA Cup once. That's five major domestic trophies. Then there's the Carabao Cup three times, some Spanish Super Cups, some European Super Cups, a few Community Shields, and three Club World Cups as well. So it's pretty, pretty easily in Pep's favour. I guess... Um, it would be remiss just to just call it there. Obviously, we need to talk about you know, why that is the case. And I'd just like to make the point that the, the worst team that Pep has ever inherited or begun managing outside of his first year at Barca B, which doesn't really count, that team was Man City's when he picked them up. And that included Raheem Sterling, Vincent Company, Kevin De Bruyne, David Silva, Yaya Torre, and Sergio Aguero. And then the first summer, he bought Gundogan and Sané. The first team that Klopp inherited was in the second division in Germany. It was Mainz. And the most notable player, because I looked it up earlier, was a 21-year-old Andrew Voronin, nice. Liverpool legend. So when we talk about the trophy discussion, yeah, obviously Pep wins in trophies, but Pep has been habitually put in better situations um, than, than, than Klopp has. And Klopp has obviously had a couple of chances to build on that trophy cabinet and, and, and make more of some of the opportunities he's had. He's, he's lost a Europa League final. He's lost the Carabao Cup final to Man City. Uh, he's lost the Champions League finals to Real Madrid in 2018. So there have been opportunities for him to have a few more. But yeah, same, flip the coin. Pep's lost three Champions League semis, you know, against some of the best teams on earth. And sometimes it's just fine margins there. And sometimes Real Madrid, just offside law doesn't apply to them. That's, that's just how it works sometimes. So uh, Pep's way further ahead, but Pep's been put in, put in better positions throughout. 
Yeah, I was, I was going to kind of take this on further and, and just be like, look, let's look at Germany, which is, it seems a kind of an interesting one to look at because, as you said there, two league titles for the Jürgen Klopp in Germany and a couple of other bits and bobs as well. Was it three for Pep? Three. Bayern? You know, when you look at that and you look at the amount of seasons that they were in, in charge, it is kind of, it, it does swing things slightly. I mean, I agree with you. I think it would be it would be remiss not to give this to Pep, given the amount of trophies he literally has in the cabinet. But it's worth thinking about that time in Germany and weighing it up against each other because you look at the squad that Klopp had, you look at the squad that Pep had, and you actually think to win two league titles with that Dortmund squad, you know, Klopp did a hell of a job. Yeah, and I mean, I think that you can still see that because Dortmund are still thinking about those days when Klopp was there and they're still trying to get back to those days. And I think that, you know, they've had so many coaches since Klopp left. Um, You know, the current one's just clinging on by the skin of his teeth um, because none of them can replicate what Klopp was able to do. And um, what happened at, at Bayern was that uh, Pep um, played them in such a style and, and produced kind of a, a plan that they've just replicated again and again, but had built such a good squad that they could just, they've just been able to emerge and carry on and carry on and carry on. And the coaches that have come in, I, I think have benefited from what Pep did there. Whereas I think at Dortmund, the coaches have suffered because of what, of what went on. So I think that that's the difference. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a nice point. And, and to add to it, I suppose, is the guy, oh, Barcelona, I suppose, are still looking for Pep. Oh, absolutely. Same thing. Hangover, right? It's, um, well, maybe maybe that's the, uh, that's <laughs> the, other the thing, last. Yeah, I think, you know, let, let's judge this in, in two months' time because, you know, yes, Jurgen Klopp's taken away his league title this season, but um, Guardiola could, could do a treble this season. He's got the Carabao Cup. He's in the semi-finals of the FA Cup. Um, could be a nice Manchester derby on the horizon um, in the FA Cup final, which would be a, a huge game. And then, of course, there's still the possibility that he wins the Champions League this season. That's the big one and the one he's really going to be judged on at Man City. So, yeah, we'll see in August once the Champions League is finally played out. Uh, just whether he can prove everybody wrong. So I think it's the first time people really starting to doubt him, whether he can overcome this, this difficult period. If he wins the Champions League, then absolutely he will. Yeah. Right. Are we giving this to, to Pep then? Yeah. Okay. Let's move things on and let's take transfers into account. Now, this one's a bit tricky um, because of the nature of transfers, taking different people into account, taking your directors of football, taking the amount of money you have to spend, all of these different things means this is quite a difficult one, but Dean, you are our transfer guru. I'm, I'm going to go to you first here. Today. I think it's it's a difficult one because Pep is obviously um, not made fun of, but people always say that well, Guardiola comes in and just buys football teams. And I understand what they're saying because he does he does basically do that and he makes some huge signings. But that's because I think it takes a player of a very high football IQ to be able to play his brand of football, to listen to his instructions and then carry it out. And if you can't do that, you don't survive. And it takes him a matter of weeks to work out who's strong enough to see it through and who's not. You just look at somebody like Joe Hart, who'd been England's number one goalkeeper at Man City, no questions asked of him at all. Within weeks, Pep was like, you're not good enough, you're gone. Um, that That is how harsh it is in his world. His career's um, never recovered either. No, Pep has ruined Joe Hart. <laughs> Coming and he realized that he wasn't very good until that point. Um, but what um, what happens um, on the flip of that is you, you see a club like Liverpool and Klopp's had time to build this team, but he spent a lot of money to get where he is. And I think that we shouldn't forget that. Um, Klopp spent 35 million on Oxlade-Chamberlain, 75 on Van Dijk, 52 on Cater, 
43 on Fabinho, 65 on his goalkeeper, Alisson. In a sense, he, he has bought the league title with those players because three of them are key players. Um, and so you look at Pep and what he's spent. Um, he got Edison for basically half the price of Alisson. He was, he was £35 million for his goalkeeper. Um, he got Laporte for £57 million, So he's a, he's a cheaper centre-back. He's, his record signing was Rodri, who was around 63. So that's not even as much as Alisson and definitely not as much as Van Dijk. So his spending has obviously been vast in the sense that he's bought a lot of players for like quite big sums, but he hasn't spent 80 million, 90 million. He hasn't yeah, he, been allowed He just to... buys everyone for 50 million. Yeah. This is the pet <laughs> philosophy. Yeah, but I think that what, the reason, the way I'm going to judge these managers actually is on what comes next. So it's going to be difficult to say right now, but they've both built brilliant football teams. But how do they rebuild these great football teams? What's Pep 2.0? What's Klopp 2.0? Does Pep now go out and sign Koulibaly? Or is he really just going to sign Nathan Ake? Because if he's signing Nathan Ake, then City are done. Like, this, is, this isn't going to be... They're not, they're not going to become the great force of Europe if they're signing Nathan Ake. If they sign Koulibaly, then we could be seeing something really special. Um, I think that City have reached a time when they do push the boat out again and only the best is good enough. Um, we'll see whether he manages to do that. And on the flip side, what does Jurgen Klopp do? Everything I'm being told is that they're not going to spend a lot of money this summer, that Klopp believes enough in what he's already built to carry on for at least another year. Um, so at this moment in time, I'd say I would give Klopp the edge this minute just because he was, um, he stuck, they, Liverpool stuck with their philosophy of we want these guys and we're going to wait for them. We want Cater, we'll wait a year for him. We want Van Dijk, we'll, we'll wait a year for him. And they got the players that they wanted and it's won them the league title, no matter how much money it's cost them. I think there have probably been a few times where Man City have been swayed from going for their absolute number one target and just taken the second best. Um, and I think it might be time for them to change that. I mean, I, I don't know if this is a fair comment, but I'm going to raise it anyway. Is there more flop in the Man City kind of spending than there is at Liverpool's? You look at Liverpool's spending and you don't, think oh yeah there's been massive Naby Keita is probably the closest they've come to someone who's not really performed for his price tag and I still think the best is is yet to come from, from Naby Keita I think he will become an important part of the side in time whereas you look at City and you look at you know there's been a lot of fullbacks which is there's the one that, that springs to mind but you know there, there's been a couple of things that just haven't quite worked out and that's I suppose why I would maybe also give Klopp the edge here. Sam, what were your Yeah, I found it really difficult. You kind of you kind of broached it at the top, but the, the presence of sporting directors, technical directors, um, or particularly involved owners sometimes uh, means it's really hard for us to know on the outside, or even for Dean, who you know has one one foot on the inside, to 100% know who is responsible for exactly what. And the thing is with Dortmund, Klopp's Dortmund, and then obviously Klopp's Liverpool, Michael Zork and Michael Edwards are two renowned transfer gurus and sporting directors and they're making good calls every time so at Dortmund like is Klopp to uh, to praise for Marco Royce for Mats Hummels for Kagawa Pisek Blaszczykowski or is it actually Michael Zorc and then at Liverpool like look what Klopp has done look at how much better Mane Salah and Wijnaldum are than when they were when they were signed look at look at the difference which is incredible 
were they top of crop shortlist or was that a, a data analysis buy from Edwards? I don't know the answer. Is that, that player development though, Sam? That, I That's mean, another category. May, maybe, maybe, but it's also whether or not, whether or not this, my, my question is whether or not Wijnaldum was, was on Klopp's shortlist or whether it was nothing to do with him. He was given him and Klopp went, right, I'm going to develop this player, which is a different question. I, I don't know where to draw the line. So basically where I ended up was exactly what you said right at the end there, Jack. Who's got, who's got the more flops? Who across, who, across the mean average, has been more successful? And Klopp, don't know, don't know exactly how in, in, involved he's been over the years in all these transfers, but I don't think he has a Zlatan story, you know, where he just absolutely did not, like, was bought into the idea of a player, and it just didn't happen at all. Um, and he doesn't have any fullbacks that he's bought for 60 million that he then doesn't use, like Joao Cancelo. So I give it to Klopp as well by a hair, and I think Pep's history of just the odd big signing that just absolutely hasn't worked. So we could see the best of Cancelo and he's been around a few clubs so it might suggest I don't know it might suggest something else if you pay for Benfica, Valencia and Juventus and Man City in a five-year spell what's going on there? I, I don't know he's really good but I don't know what the problem is there. Maybe it's not Pep at all but on the evidence I actually can grasp I'm giving it I'm saying Klopp is, is the better at transfers. Yeah okay well we'll give that one to Jürgen Klopp which means that we are I mean look let's move on to player development because that seems to be the next big one to, to you know to take it. So I'm going to go straight back to you, Sam. Yeah. I mean, so again, with like the whole sporting director argument, I mean, I guess you could say, you know, it's a coaching staff that makes a player, not just a manager, but at least the coaching staff is like, it embodies embodies a coach. The coach is the tip of the iceberg, but the iceberg is of their making. And obviously, like both, both managers here have incredible success stories. So like, look at the entire Liverpool team right now. Take out basically Van Dijk and Allison, maybe you'd say, and the rest of them, Klopp has done incredible things with, particularly Wijnaldum, who is like four times the player he was at Newcastle. He got relegated when they bought him. Joe Gomez as well is, is another player who's come on so well. Even Matip and definitely Andy Robertson. And then actually definitely Jordan Henderson, who has become so much better as well. And then Pep has got these stories like, you know, what he's done with Raheem Sterling, you know, it's been incredible. Fernandinho is unbelievable now, now, or maybe maybe was a year ago or so, and that felt like a pep as well. So is this, you know, is this again judged by by the misses rather than hits? Is that the fairest way to do it? And I was looking for misses for Klopp, and I just couldn't really find any. I mean, Shakiri hasn't worked out, but it wasn't really a major signing, was it? And with Pep, I know there have been some injuries at play here, but I don't think he's he hasn't improved John Stones. Ben Mendy's got worse. Appreciate his knee when. Um, and Otamendi, I don't know if you, I don't even know if I can hold Otamendi against against Pep because it would be like holding Lovren against Klopp. It's just not fair. They are who they are. Um, so I think I'm shading Klopp again, and I think it's because the degree to which he's improved a player like Alexander Arnold and Robertson and Henderson and Wijnaldum is actually even greater than what Pep has done. With I mean, he's even managed to improve Aguero. Pep has managed to get Aguero to contribute in so many ways that he didn't before. So it's a tough call, but I think I'm Klopp again. Yeah, I'm going to go Pep here, so I'm actually going to throw to Dean Jones for a decision. Yeah, it's. I think they're just they've just done it in such different ways. That's why it's it's different to to grasp exactly who is better at this if there is such a thing. Um, I was looking also at the, at the young players, and obviously, like City, there there just aren't the opportunities for young players, and the the biggest one, I guess, is Phil Foden. And I actually... Youth, I is, youth is the next category, to be fair, Dean. Stop going into the different categories, <laughs> Dean. But it's still player development. And Foden, I, I like the way that he's developed him because actually what he's done is he's kind of paired him with David Silva for the last two years and gone, right, right this guy's going to be off in a couple of years. You are going to become him. Um, I'm not going to be loaning you out. I'm not going to be... 
uh, listening to what he offers for you. You will be a Man City player and you will fit into this system. You just aren't quite ready for it yet. And that's fair enough because as good as he was, he wasn't ready for it. And now we finally see Foden the last couple of weeks and even beyond that, you think it's back to the Carabao Cup final and, and matches that he had before we had the break. Foden's looking the real deal. So I think that there are there are cases in which Pep is, is developing people slowly, whereas I think that the development of Liverpool's players has just been a lot quicker. And I think the, the case of Trent is an obvious one. I think with Trent, he might have stumbled across something which he didn't realise quite how good it was going to turn out. Um, I don't think there were many people at Liverpool that, that thought Trent would become a mainstay in this Liverpool team and one of the most valuable defenders in the planet at this point. Um, but credit for Klopp because um, not only has he made the most of his assets going forward, he has made him a better defender um, and he has made him part of that, that defensive unit that, that's seen them through to the league title. So um, as I say, there are very different ways of judging this. The Raheem Sterling thing is something that I just can't get past though. Like I think he's taken Raheem Sterling to levels that Raheem Sterling was never going to get to. I think that um, is why I'm going to give it to Pep. So let me just add something on the end here. And I, I appreciate that, that that he has developed Foden well. And I'm not going to take that away from him. I'm not going to try to anyway, because I can't. Um, but Foden it was an incredible teenage prospect before Pep probably even laid eyes on him. And Foden was in that uh, England youth setup alongside Jaden Sancho and Callum Hudson-Odoi. And they were three genuinely unbelievably good youth prospects. And again, not to take it off Pep, but Foden developing into a really good player happens for anyone, right? Any manager can do that. What Klopp did with Wijnaldum has blown my mind, yeah? So there's, a, there's kind of like a difference between, you know, caressing an elite prospect into the next level over the course of three years. Fine. Man, what Klopp has done with some of these players, like Sadio Mane, I watched most of his games for Southampton and I could never believe he would turn into the elite difference maker that he has done. And what do you mean? He scored a hat-trick in like two minutes. What? Mate, two minutes of football. It's great, great and everything, but why, like he was so hot and cold at Southampton, it was incredible. And he was obviously a really good player, but it was those kind of stories. It's Mane, it's Wijnaldum. It's, it's, he's done stuff with players that I just couldn't fathom. And that's, that's why I shaded towards Klopp, because with Pep, he's take, he's, I, can see the, I can see the career development for, for a lot of these players. Klopp has just stupefied me with some of the stuff that he's done with, with some players that I really yeah. just didn't I think, think were good enough to play for. It goes back to you know, how you have to be so good to play for Pep in the first place, but I don't think that's the case with Klopp. I think that that's a fair point. It depends how you're judging player development. If you're talking like Sam there about taking an average player and making him a title winner, then, then fair enough. Uh, but I, I like also the cases of these re really good players that would have had Premier League careers, but actually turns them into s stars. Um, and that, that's the cases for, for me of, of Foden and Sterling. I think that he's taken players that were already going to be really good players and turn them into great players. Yeah. All right. Well, it sounds, it sounds like you guys have given it to Pep. Uh, yeah, yeah. which is fair but we then we then went we then move into youth which is intrinsically linked to what we're more or less talking about here um, and uh, and Klopp, yeah, Klopp might win because as as good as good as Pep has been with with Foden and select other players and then back through his career by the way you know first one of the first things he did in 2008 when he when he took the job at Barcelona was Shit promote, out everyone wasn't it? was 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 sell Ronaldinho Right, and promote Pedro from the B team. And then he promoted Busquets as well and Bojan. And he brought PK back at age 21 from Man United for 5 million euros. One of these is not like the others. 
<laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe PK is not quite on their level, but uh, no, yeah, Bojan didn't didn't exactly go that well after the first season, but initially he he integrated him and Ibrahim Afalai. One of the yeah, once so one like we, he has a history of this, and but that year they won the Champions League, and Busquets and Pedro like they were major players in that run. Yeah. Um, uh, but with City and probably starting back at Bayern, that that dipped off. We saw a bit of Kingsley Coman at Bayern. We saw a little bit less of Hoybier. We saw even less of Gianluca Galdino. And we saw way more of the buying the stars. We got Lewandowski, we got Benatia, we got Xabi Alonso at 32 or something like that to kind of add his last few elite years in. City, of course, he's bought a lot of stars. And you've got the likes of Foden, who is being drip-fed in over three years. Uh, you've got Sancho leaving, Brahim Diaz defects to Real Madrid, and I think he was like, horribly underutilized. And, you know, we're not going to hold the Rabi Matondos against, against Pep Guardiola. We're not saying that everybody shouldn't be given a chance. But over the years, maybe as the pressure has cracked up due to his own reputation, due to his own failure to repeat a Champions League victory that last occurred back in 2011, we're coming up to a decade of it. Maybe maybe that's played on his mind and maybe he's been less willing to bring through those young players. Whereas Klopp throughout, throughout, you know, go back to Mario Gotza, who was first choice at Dortmund at 18 years of age, won the Bundesliga in the year that he made 30 plus appearances. Hummels and Subotic were the same. Trent now and Joe Gomez is another story for Klopp. I think yeah. throughout, throughout, he has nailed the youth game, whereas Pep, over the years, has started to shy away from it. And that, that makes Klopp the clear winner in this area for me. Jürgen Klopp has to win this one. I think we've heard a lot about Liverpool and their, and their youth set up. We had Alex Singlethorpe on, on the podcast, and I've, I've heard from him. And I'm away from the microphone to know that Klopp has such an eye on, on what's going on there. And he does have plans for the players uh, involved in the academy setup. A lot of the players, if not all of the players in Liverpool's academy, get the chance to to go and test themselves uh, with the first team. They might they might only get the one session and then then they are pushed away for another year because they just weren't close to it. But he he does do this thing where there are constant opportunities for young players, for teenagers, to go and train and be a part of what's going on in the first team. And even if you have to come away from that again because you weren't quite up to it, just the opportunity to have even been there is something that you wouldn't get at almost any other elite club at, at that point. And he's not doing it just to make up the numbers in training sessions. From what I hear, he does it just to make the club more inclusive and he, want, he wants people to feel like there is a path to the first team. Um, so, yes, there's only a two, three, four players that you're going to see actually play in the first team, but that's because the standards are so high and it's almost impossible for a young player to, to make that step up, like Sam says. Um, next thing, we will see it more and Harvey Elliott will, will be somebody that plays a lot more. I know that he's not necessarily come from the academy because they bought him from Fulham, but um, they are they are going to give these players a chance. Curtis Jones will, will get the chance. Nico Williams will get a chance. Like There will be opportunities going forward for more Liverpool players. And I think, you know, there's the FA Cup example to use as well here. You know, there's not many managers that would trust... Um, another coach, another group of players to just go and play one of his matches. Like, Pep's not doing that in a million years. Yeah, well, I mean, he doesn't have, he doesn't have the same issues, I suppose. There's the flip side of that. Um, right, let's take things onwards to, I know what this is, uh, Sam's favourite of the nine categories, uh, media handling. So, if that one's thrown to you. Jack tried to get me to leave this one out. Um, but my argument was, and I hate this, by the way, but it, facts are facts. Um, media handling is an intrinsic part of being a manager in England. 
and it's to do with the um, the British, the traditional British media's obsession with personalities over actual football substance, and. Uh, you have to say that one of these managers handles it a bit better than the other. I mean, Klopp has essentially befriended an entire nation over the last, uh, well, particularly two years. But since he uh, since he arrived, he's got this 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 charm about him. He bear hugs people. He he laughs and he guffaws in press conferences and he makes jokes and he's very personable. And Pep can be that. He can, but he's also sometimes doesn't does not want to speak to you, does not want to be there. Would love to talk about football if you would, but more often than not, the people gathered in the room actually aren't very interested in that at all anyway. And that won't, that won't sell a paper, that won't make a headline. They're not interested in Pep Guardiola's intrinsic analysis of Real Madrid. They want to know if he thinks that Dan's a bold fraud that, because who better to speak about that than another bold man? I don't know. It's very, very strange, but Klopp handles it much better than Pep. Pep honestly sometimes just looks sick of everybody that he's looking at. And this directly translates to the public opinion on the manager and how people see them and how they are portrayed. And it is a part of it, whether or not anyone likes it or not. I personally wish it wasn't, but it is. And Klopp gets it and Pep does, but sometimes ignores it in my opinion. Yeah, Pep just sometimes, he just looks often like Pep's just like, nah, I'm just not doing this today. So I'm not turning up for you jokers. And I kind of rate it, to be honest. Yeah, that would be my point. I, I think it would be, it'd be nuts if you didn't give this category to Jurgen Klopp, considering how well he has played the media. Uh, and how well he continues to, you know, shine in, in these kind of press conferences. But I do just rate how Pep sometimes turns up as like, I just can't, like, nah, ain't happening. Dean, you were in, you've been in many press conferences. What, what's the, what's the vibe like that when you have two managers, one of whom, you know, is happy to answer basically any question, the other who just can't be? A totally different feeling. And I mean, there's no doubt about it. When you're in a press conference with Pep, um, you're more on edge. Um, he's more spiky. He's There's a good chance if he doesn't like the way that you've worded your question, then he'll give you a strange look or quite a rude answer. Um, it's that might You have to be much smarter about the way you ask your question because if he doesn't respect your question, he's not going to respect you. Um, you have to kind of show a certain football IQ yourself, I think, around Pep Guardiola. Um, but I've seen, um, I've had times, a couple of times with Pep when he's been really laid back. There was one time in particular when I was in New York pre-season with him, did some stuff, a bleacher report with him, and he was so laid back and he was so, so charming. And it, it was really nice to see him in that environment, to be honest. Uh, and it was great. But that's how Klopp is all the time. It's so rare that you see somebody like Jurgen Klopp in a football environment because football people aren't that nice. Um, you don't get to the top by being a nice guy. You get to the top by being harsh, by uh, being ruthless, and basically by not respecting anyone that's below you. <laughs> and, that's, and that's often the case with football managers. You know, I've, I've been in a uh, press conferences and ask questions to Alex Ferguson and Mourinho and I've had bad responses from both of those and trust me it is a not, not a nice feeling when those two are looking at you like you're stupid or looking at you like they've got no time for you um, with Klopp I've, I've only you know spoken to him a handful of times but I've never had that and I've never even been in a room when Klopp's made somebody else feel like that. And that's a credit to he, the type of person he is, to be honest. And, I, and I, I really respect him for that. The only thing I would say is that Klopp's had a nice ride so far in English football. Um, there hasn't really been any times when he has been criticised heavily for a prolonged period where he's had his tactics questioned, where he's had his, his transfers questioned. 
you know, if Van Dyke hadn't worked out so well, how would he react to people criticizing him spending 75 million pounds on a centre back? Um, how is he going to react this time if Liverpool are fourth in the league and everyone's saying, oh, you were just a one-year wonder? We don't know. There's also things that are outside of Pep's control. Like, he gets, the most he ever gets pissed off is people, when people ask him about financial fair play and Champions League bans. And he's rightly like, I don't know. What's it got to do with me? Like, it's not my decision. Like, I just spend what I'm given away. Like, it's, 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 you know, he's like, why are you asking me these questions? And he gets really annoyed. And I get it. Klopp hasn't really had to, like, I guess he hasn't been put in those difficult spots very much. But I also think there's an element of, like, if Pep has decided on the day that he um, he's not really interested in your question and he doesn't quite understand it, he makes very little attempts to actually understand it or ask you about what, what you meant. Whereas even when Klopp's English wasn't the best, it was good but not amazing um he would work really hard to try and understand what you were talking about and try to try to try to work out the sentence in his head and try to answer it in the best way he could whereas i don't think that's what happened with pep i think he would just be like i don't know okay all right well that one is a a three-way landslide for for the german um and we have two categories to finish and they both begin with l one is longevity and the other is legacy. I'm going to start with longevity and I'm going to start with you, Sam. Yeah, so I think we have evidence that both of these these coaches can burn out a little bit. Uh, Pep more than Klopp, but I think Klopp at the end of Dortmund burnt out a bit. Um, that's a product of them being very, very intense. Um, I think Klopp probably passes the longevity test a bit better. Uh, I don't know if that's because he gives out more hugs than Pep Guardiola. Fewer icy stairs, more hugs might be the secret. But just based on the terms that they serve. I mean, Klopp has two seven-year tenures under his belt um, and he's going strong at Liverpool. Guardiola hasn't made it past, well, this is his longest one, isn't it? He hadn't made it past four years. You know, we, we're starting to see a little bit more from him. And I guess Klopp wins it based on that for me. I don't, I don't see if there's an, another way to, 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 to compare them side by side. Uh, is there a better way? Um, well, I mean, I suppose the, the question you pose is of what do you define longevity as, right? And whether longevity is your spell at one club or longevity is your, your kind of effect over the game as a whole for a long period of time. That's what I would call legacy. And we'll see, I, I think there's something in what Dean, and to reference something that Dean said earlier, in that when Klopp left Dortmund, they're still searching for Klopp. You know, and Dortmund have, have really fallen off since Klopp left, really, if, if we're honest. You know, they haven't been brilliant for, for many years, you know, maybe since those years. Whereas Pep seems to leave the teams he leaves in strong position. And I would say that that is potentially something that counts in his favour. You know, even so, when Pep leaves, he leaves the club in a place that someone else could take them on and take them further. And you look at Luis Enrique, who, who went in at, at Barcelona and changed a couple of things round. Yeah, sure. But basically just took Pep's model and just tweaked it a little bit and was like, yeah, thanks very much. Let's carry on. And, you know, you look at the same, and, and as Dean said about, about this Bayern team that are still going now, a lot of these are still Pep's players. A lot of these are still the team that Pep crafted and is and are still benefiting from, given, you know, where we are six years on. And I think that that in itself is, is a massive plus in Pep's cap. Isn't that legacy? I thought I, put, I would define all of that as legacy. All of it. Almost everything you said was uh, for me is legacy. It's like the legacy that you leave. The legacy he left in Bayern is that David Alaba can play centre back, and the fact that Hansi Flick is develop is is benefiting from that is is legacy rather than Pep's own longevity okay, for me. Well, le- okay, I was going to go more legacy as be like in twenty years' time, who are we going to look back at as the more kind of important? Well, I mean the the the, the lasting impression point you, you bring up for me is is 
is certainly crucial. Dean, the article that you've referenced with regard to Dortmund failing to move over, uh, move past your, the obsession of Jurgen Klopp, I, um, I searched the article for the word Klopp session, but you didn't use it. Um, so I thought that was a real, a real negative in your column that you didn't use that word. I think it was tailor-made for it, unfortunately. But the legacy that Klopp has left at his, his two clubs and, and, and the, the third one being Liverpool that he will leave based on what he's done is incredible. And to become a favoured son in cities like Liverpool and Dortmund, footballing cities like that is some achievement. I think at the personal legacy of those areas, I think Klopp will leave a stronger one. Um, but I think a ge- on the general football imprint, I think Pep will leave the strongest, or at least he has for me. And maybe this is just a personal way of it. But we talked about it before, Jack. We talked about it in previous podcasts. The three years, the, the, the three years at, at Barca, where the, the footballing was at its ultimate peak, is like it's a seminal moment in the sport for me, and it's redefined how I how I watch and I enjoy football. And that that is the ultimate legacy for me from Pep. Klopp's, I think, is more particular to where he's been. I think Pep's is, um, Pep's is more broad across the entire sport. Well, maybe we roll these both into one. Then. And um, Well, I think Pep wins legacy and Klopp wins longevity. <laughs> and if you roll them together, because I think we're talking about the same things over two separate words. Which maybe, is basically, maybe. Because otherwise I, we're just talking about literally in, in the same way that we, we talked earlier about things being objective and rather subjective. Like Pep, uh, Klopp has longer spells at clubs than Pep does is not potentially how I would define an entire topic. Yeah, maybe, maybe. But maybe that's a question of how long they can last and how long that intensity can last in the way they operate. And in that case, that is a fair way to measure the longevity of a manager's principles and ideas and approach because Pep, the evidence would suggest, cannot do what he does for as long as Klopp does. Maybe, but I think if you look at the opening years of either of the Klopp tenures at Liverpool and at Dortmund, it was just basically like build for three years before we even have a sniff at getting anywhere near where we want to be. And yeah. so you come in and you look at a pep team and you come in at the very, very peak already. And it's sort of four years of straight kind of glory, 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 fine. I'm gone. Whereas Klopp's is more of a kind of, right, let's spend a little bit of time getting to know things and trumping around in seventh place for a bit. And, <laughs> you know, like wandering around, building, finding some players. And then eventually I will make my teams really good, but it's going to take some time. So, I mean... Four years at the very top being questioned for every single decision you're making is potentially, you know, as hard. And they're both doing it. it just Pep, just clock takes a little bit longer to get there. Yeah, maybe it just takes over those teams at a lower ebb. Maybe that's yeah. the maybe, as you say, that's that's maybe the difference. All right. Well, if you roll them into one, I'm going to go Pep because of the broader legacy. The way he, for me, he changed the way I look at football. And this comes from someone who it does not have an affection or or an attachment to any of the teams that either of these two uh, individuals have managed. So yeah, that's absolutely. the stronger impression for me. Dean? Yeah, I think, you know, Guardiola is going to be remembered like Johan Cruyff is remembered because he is he has changed the way that football is played and how football is watched. Jurgen Klopp hasn't done that. Jurgen Klopp's been a great manager, a great coach, um, particularly for, for Dortmund and Liverpool. Um, but he hasn't changed the game. He's just adapted the game to suit two teams. Um, one thing that... Um, it was in that, that, that piece I, I wrote about um, Borussia Dortmund. I spoke to a guy who is an analyst. His name is Abel Meseros. And he said to me that um, in Germany, Klopp's viewed as like a religious leader. Um, he's just kind of got this aura about him in the sense that he's charismatic enough to inspire this devout following, yet he was understanding and caring enough on a human level to then connect with them. And then on top of that, he developed this 
football team with this heavy metal brand of playing. And I think that the two things are just so different. What what they're both achieving in the game is just so different. And I think that what happens next to these managers? Well, Guardiola will go on to probably uh, manage Spain and win the World Cup and he'll win Euros and they'll probably dominate the international scene for however many years. And Klopp will probably just go into another project for like five, six years and do this all over again. AC Milan um, sounds like a good place for Klopp to go. Yeah, that'd be great. You know, some, 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 he'll do something like this again. Maybe he'll even go back to Dortmund. I don't know. But I just see Klopp as a great project manager, but a big project manager over a long period of time, like longevity. But yeah, like Sam says, legacy is about defining football in a way that very, very few people can do. And Pep Guardiola is going to be remembered in a hundred years time for exactly that. Okay. Well, that leads us at four. Does it really? <laughs> it does yeah. indeed. Um, which which, lead, which means, dear, yeah, who's better at penalties? Uh, probably Klopp. Klopp definitely <laughs> has the old ball. Um, it leaves you, dear listener, uh, to make your own mind up on who currently has the edge between Pep Guardiola and Jurgen Klopp and what you value as the most important we said this at the end of our Messi versus Ronaldo debate that we weren't here to give you a definitive answer and the answer will change based on how you view the game on how you view management on how you view what a coach should do but ultimately we've uh, hopefully entertained you for a little while with uh, a debate above the respective merits of two incredible managers there's one last way to judge this for us three though like a sudden death thing who would you want to be a manager Klopp or Guardiola. Who would you choose? Pep. It's interesting because I've I think I've even said Pep before on this podcast. But since watching the Man City documentary on Amazon, I don't think I could handle it. <laughs> I couldn't handle it. I wouldn't survive. I'd love that. I'd love that. That's Klopp. the kind of management I, I want. No, I need Klopp. I need Klopp definitely. So I'm going Klopp. I think someone who would drive. I think yeah. I thought you would go Klopp, Dean. That's why I, I thought you would. And I think I'd get on really well with Jurgen Klopp. I think we'd just spend a lot of time hugging each other, drinking and smoking. Yeah, but I think that I think that Guardiola could take me to a new level in terms of my uh, my my game, my podcasting ability. He'd be there, like really driving me on to to become a top level, top quality podcaster. And right. Okay. Uh, we haven't got much time left, um, but there is time for two small things. Um, and the first of which is Dean Jones's Medal of the Week. Now, I have an apology for the rank squad because last week I accidentally cut this out of the episode when I was trimming down the roulette section. And so my deepest apologies, roulette uh, Medal of the Week was supposed to come back last week, but it unfortunately didn't quite make the cut by complete accident. Um, and that is very much on me. So, Dean, would you would you like to... One, tell them who last week's Melon of the Week is, and uh, two, fill in for this week. It's time for two Melons of the Week. The one for last week was David Louise. Yeah. No explanation needed. Just go back and watch his week. Um, <laughs> yeah, strange. Strange happenings for him. We've got no new contract at the end of it, so it's all good. Yeah, anyway, exactly. this one, Melon of the Week is Samuel and Titi. Wow. I just. I wasn't expecting yeah. that. No, I wasn't either. Well, have a look again at what's going on at Barcelona and watch the Celta Vigo game. It was a tricky one this week because there wasn't much good football on show anywhere. Um, so I was thinking about the bigger clubs and like where are their weaknesses. And as I was looking at it, Samuel and Titi just kept cropping up in my mind. And he was given a start against Celta Vigo on the back of, I think it was about four games when Barcelona haven't conceded a goal. And 
They drew 2-2 in the game. CT at fault for one of the goals. Could have given away a penalty. I just think that this guy is going backwards. And at a time when we're talking at the opening of this show about Barcelona being in trouble and kind of relying on figures from the past and, and not so much... Um, putting much emphasis on, what, on what's going to happen in a few years' time. I think Antiti kind of epitomises that, but he's not one of the players that they should be embracing right now, I'm afraid. Um, he did play like a bit of a melon. Um, and I imagine Barcelona supporters are going to back me up on this. But yeah, um, Antiti is going backwards and not helping their cause. Wow. I think that's incredibly harsh. But um, I, I mean, you are Melon Maestro, so therefore it doesn't really matter what I think at all, frankly. Um, and that leads us on to... Just run out of voice there. I've just forgotten how to make any noise. That is the nonsense siren. And Sam, over to you for... All right, yeah, cool. Um, this week, I present my three best uh, football content pitches that no one is commissioning, and I don't understand why. Oh, this is the content. Uh, no, number three is a TV series called Noise Keen, and it's where we ask Everton striker Moise Keen to rank the top 10 stadiums he's ever played in based on the atmosphere and noise levels generated. I would number two is something called Bad Mahmood. And it's a no-holds-barred deep dive into the psyche of Dortmund midfielder Mahmood Dahoud to see what puts him in a bad mood. And number one is Show Me The Mane. Uh, we show Sadio Mane 10 different currencies across the world, starting with uh, Senegalese, a British pound, and moving into the more obscure, lesser-known versions, and we count how many he can get right. I mean, that one's quite good, and that should probably have been put to our social team because they probably need to film that one, mate. Mate, I've done it, and they won't. I meant, I meant it when I said no one, no one is commissioning these, and I don't know why. We have great. We've had a couple, Sam. Uh, chicken teriyake with John Terry and Nathan Ake. Yeah, that, that, worked, that worked really well when they were both at Chelsea. But it, this, yeah, it disappeared when John Terry left. Uh, but chick, yeah, chicken teriyaki would have been really good. Yeah, that was a good one. Uh, the cartoon TV series that we've developed called Modders and the Rack Attack, where <laughs> Luka Modric and <laughs> Ivan Rakitic solve crimes in their native Croatia. Yeah, yeah, that was good. That was World Cup 2018-born, wasn't it? Modders and the Rack Attack. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, yeah. Yeah, we've had we've had some we've had some ideas. Yeah, I mean, Bad Mahmood was something I came up on the first um, the first return of the Bundesliga weekend when he looked just thoroughly annoyed, um, and I wondered why. And what about this? rash tackles, <laughs> rates over the top X-rated tackles. Now that's the content I live for. That's what yeah. I want to see. Martial arts. Anthony Martial rates and ranks every form of martial arts in existence. Or just like judges an art competition. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think there's lots here. We, um, we, if you've got any new ones that we can add into our punny games we can play with footballers one day, then please do send them in using the hashtag BRFootballRanks on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, and with that, and on that bombshell, we are going to call time today. And all that's left for me to do is say thank you very much to Sam Time. Thank you, mate. Thank you very much, Steve Jones. Bye-bye. I've been Jack Collins. We will be back next week with a very special guest that we're very excited about. And we will see you on Wednesday. Take care, look after yourselves, people.